0: the sports career podcast episode 336 how can the superhero series increase sports participation with disabilities Hello, Sports Achiever, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Sports Crib Podcast. I'm your host, Ed Bowers. As always, my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who's an expert in a particular sector of the sports industry, especially if you have an interest with regards to the mass participation industry. I hope today's episode can support your sports career development, interests, and needs. Now, getting back to today's podcast special guest is Sophia Warner, BEM who is a former Paralympian and the founder of Superhero Series. With Agasta Sophia's athletics career journey, she participated in the 2012 Paralympics in the 100 and 200 metres. Currently now she is the founder of Superhero Series, which is UK's one and only disability sports series for every superhero, where people with disabilities can really call the shots and have equal access to compete in mass participation events with no cut-off times or equipment restrictions so for that reason it's such a pleasure to have Sophia as a podcast special guest on the show where she will share her sports career journey and explain to you how the superhero series can increase sports participation with people with disabilities have a listen and enjoy Sophia, it's such a joy to have you on the podcast show. Please you share to listeners your sports career journey. When did it all start? Oh, my
1: goodness. Uh, it feels like a very long time ago. Uh, I've always been a, a very sporty person. I think uh, having a disability back in the 70s, I was born in 74. I think um, it's, been a, it's been an epic journey because there's been such a big change within disability sport. So I think, really, in all seriousness, it probably started like all sports lovers when I was very young, but it didn't start to get very serious really until I was actually seventeen or eighteen.
0: With regards to what you've just said about change, can we dig deep into this? And the reason why I say this is when we dropped on a on a WhatsApp call, you said a word which really gave me like shivers of how disability was seen back, you know, thirty to forty years ago as like you, you said, spastic, and I went, oh my gosh, like. That word should not be used in any type of sporting environment, let alone with regards to disability. And I just want to hear your thoughts of what you mean of change, if it's regarding language, if it's regarding exposure, just relating to your experience from you know, positive change moving forward with regards to disability sport and how it's perceived. That makes sense.
1: Yeah, it really makes sense. It's changed in all of those things you just mentioned. So um, exposure has obviously changed due to probably London 2012, actually. So the exposure from people's understanding of disability has changed. But I mean, it's on so many levels. So... When I went to school, other people with disabilities didn't go a to school such with a joy people who had disabilities. Um, and I think I was the first journey. one in my county when did it all my dad get writing to the Prime Minister. I mean, seriously, I come from a family of persistence. So um, I think that um, integration wasn't a thing. Um, and like I said to you on our call, I went to a school that was called A School for Spastic Children. And actually, you know, just to get rid of some of the stigmas around the word, I am diagnosed as having spastic cerebral palsy, which is probably where the term comes from. Um, so actually, medically, it does exist. But I guess, as with all words, if they're used in a derogatory function, they become uncomfortable. So yes, it's not right to to use that word. And I understand why people find it difficult. But language has changed. And I think that people have just got much more understanding and actually a huge amount of compassion for people who have disabilities. and also. Much more understanding and much more acceptance. I mean, disability sport has moved on in leaps and bounds. And I always jokingly talk about the fact that I first had my GB vest in 1998, and I stood on a box in front of 80 people to collect my World Championship medal, a gold medal. I hasten to add, and then and then jump forward to 2012 where I had to run eight seconds faster over 100 meters to come fourth. That's how much it had moved. Um, and there was 80,000 people in the stadium alone watching it. So, you know, you've got audience, you've got the sport itself, the understanding, everything's changed. And uh, and I've been part of that entire journey.
0: Well, with regards to the journey, let's go back in time. I would love you to paint the picture of your really your athletics journey. Like, how do you get into the 100, 200 like running? Like, let's just paint the picture for the audience You've told me when you were born, 1974, just paint the picture of your athletics journey, if that's cool with you, because I'm curious myself.
1: of yeah, course. Cool. It's really different for someone with a disability. So uh, and also the, the journey is confusing because of so many different factors and part of it being the acceptance. So, you know, I went to a mainstream school and so I partook in mainstream um, PE, if you like. And there were some teachers along the way that wouldn't let me join in purely because of health and safety, which is I mean, it's ridiculous because I was I was good. Um, and, you know, even against people who were not disabled, I was holding my own. Um, but the journey's long um, when you have a disability because there's such a limited exposure and opportunity to do anything. So for me personally, um, my brother, my younger brother, was a very good cross-country runner. And, and I dis- I discovered how much I liked running. So I used to go out running with him. I used to go out running with him a lot, Um And I didn't even think anything of it. And then when I got to university, I was incredibly hyperactive and annoying, I think, to be around. And my housemates got me going out running with him. And eventually I got spotted actually running a 10K. Um, And distance running is definitely more comfortable for me. um, But there are no elite events for people with cerebral palsy over and above sprint distance, my classification. So the only things that I was able to compete in were the 100 meters and the 200 meters, um, and that's um, and that's where I started. Um, I went along to a trial at Don Valley Stadium in Sheffield um, back in goodness, oh, 1995 maybe, um, and I smashed it um, running 100 meters. But to give you an idea, I mean, I was not that quick, uh, and and from there um, I gradually moved through. Um, but my classification never went to a major well to a Paralympics, so there's something like um forty classifications um in disability, maybe slightly more um and when they select the Paralympic program they will pull out various classifications. I'm a T35, the T stands for track, a three for cerebral palsy or a brain injury, and then a five for what level I'm at. So a four is a wheelchair user and a five is the first one out of a wheelchair. And so at that lower level of an ambulant athlete, there was no opportunity to go to the Olympics or Paralympics or whatever. Um, and so my first chance to do that was actually London 2012. So all that time, I'd been competing at a national level, or doing competing and training six times a week, only to find out in 2007 that 2012 was going to be my my first big big games. But I guess that's the first anyone really would have seen of me. But I was in the background very much as an elite athlete up until that stage.
0: So just quickly, you, you, you oh, you're making me really intrigued now because we ha- I had Carly Tate on the podcast this year and she was a T34 so you made really yeah. nice sense of the the understanding of like the different categories which I'm really grateful for but going back to 1998 when you got the gold medal then what uh, yeah. category was that because you've thirty five. that was a T35 as well but it uh, yeah, and yeah. then but it was only 2012 when you actually competed in like on the global stage Paralympics so the world
1: championships there was plenty of opportunity all the way through for a T35 but I but but if it's not on the um if it's not on the Paralympic program as in going to a Paralympic Games it's really underrepresented so you really to, to have stuck in the sport for as long as I did without my classification being I guess recognized if you like uh, was really was just demonstrative of how much I love running it more than no more complicated than that I don't think I didn't care I just carried on going and I just carried on training because I love being in the gym I love being on the track and I love being out running and so the, I guess that because everyone only sees the Paralympic output because that's what the general public understand they don't know what goes on behind the scenes and behind the scenes I was still loving the day-to-day training
0: so okay time out here because I always say this to most athletes on the show when when was the moment which sort of created that elite mindset of being and the elite athlete in your sport you said at 17 it all started from a trial standpoint but you just said there you just did it for the love but were there any internal motivations that got you really committed for twenty twenty twelve when you were could be able to do, you know. I'm just curious because that's such a long period of time, and I don't know how you stay, I don't know how you stay resilient from a mindset perspective. That's you've got me really curious. <laughs> that's why I ask.
1: Yeah, no, it's that's such an interesting question because. I think I did actually have a light bulb moment and it was in about 2007. So by which time I'd graduated, I was still doing a lot of running, a lot of sport. And I I think I had a light bulb moment. I didn't want to just do nothing with what I was capable of doing. And then I got a tip off in 2007 from somebody who said your event, the T35 at 100 and 200 meters is going to London. And I guess almost weirdly, my business head, because by then I was very much in a, you know, I graduated, I got a good degree, I was in I was in a blue chip company working in marketing, and at that moment I think a light bulb switched on that made me think if I really want to make an impact and really want to do something with my life, I've got to go to those games. I think that was in 2007, and, I, and I, by then as well, I'd had two children, so it's kind of, like, do I want to stay on this path of just running every day training really hard and in a job, I'm allowed to say, just a mundane day-to-day job, or do I really want to go and take that extra step and switch my life? It was that moment I Whoa. just decided.
0: So just in 2007, point, in mind, you I got two children, you've got the job. How did you multitask? I'm going to have to say, how did you find that inner drive or mindset to to follow this path then? Did you have a game plan?
1: I had a switch. I had a switch where I just didn't want to carry on being. I just didn't want to carry on being who I was because so I could see that I was. I was going to be trapped. That was it. I was going to be. I was going to stay in a sort of middle management with two children and just have to carry on going to the track and just. I just. I know it sounds really. I don't know whether it sounds good or bad, but I just didn't want to be a nobody. I just wanted to make a difference.
0: So reflecting, looking back. How? What was that first step? Was it change of habits first, which then led to consistency with your training programme? Just, just looking back of you making that change, were there any significant aspects of your behaviour that then made it reality?
1: I think it was how I had a sense of direction from that moment. Like the start line of 2012 was my goal, and I just, you know, and I knew it wasn't just – I knew I had to be in the top three in the UK, which I knew was very achievable because I knew I was already – Um, So in terms of, but I knew that worldwide and I knew that by the time 2012 came along, things were moving so quickly. So just to give you an idea, back in 98, to run 100 metres as a T35 and to win, you'd be looking at sort of 21 seconds, which, by the way, don't forget you have four partially paralysed limbs at this stage in your ambulance. So so 21 seconds for 100 metres, I knew it was likely to go down to... 17 and I knew that I had to get down to 17-ish and just let you know the gold medal was one in 15 something in, in in London. That is how much the sport I mean, and it's like it's measures you can't imagine because the classification was unrecognised. So, first of all, I knew I had to change the way that I trained and I had to make a really big difference. And without going into too much detail, because it's you know it's quite a very detailed-based. I'm a triplegic, which means that I have two partially paralysed legs and my left arm is partially paralysed. But to be in a T35, you only have to be a diplegic, which is your arms are completely normal. Um, So for me, I was already at a significant disadvantage. I knew that. Got you. So I, I knew understand. that that was the situation I was in, but I, I was ready to deal with that and see what I could do. So for my sport, I had to change. I had to change the way that I was committed to my job. So I was a, I've always been a bit of a workaholic. So I was, I was a real grafter, but I knew that I had to leave the office on time every day to get to the track, and that was a given. And I had to learn how to juggle my sort of home balance. So, you know, my poor, my poor children came to the track with me a lot, Um, So I just had to change every aspect of my life just to make sure I got through the various stages of selection for for London.
0: So just on this point, those skills, what would you say the core skills that have supported you now from that experience before you even got on the track at London?
1: Weirdly, do you know what? I actually think um, I worked at British Telecom for a really long time. I went there on the graduate scheme and I did this amazing course on time management and I'm the most... Disorganized person that there is on the planet. I know I am, uh, and but I really decided I had to have a list of of the goals for each year that I had to achieve, and I I started like that, and they and I had a little book which I wish I could find it now, which told me what how fast I had to be by the end of each summer season on the track. So you know what that looked like because before this stage, I mean, I had a coach, but. Um, i wasn't being elite i wasn't i didn't have an elite coach and i knew i had to win a medal in the european championships in 2012 and i needed to win a medal in the world championships in 2011 i knew those that 2011 was the big one for me and i and i knew that in order to get onto the funding program i needed to find some money to leave my job um so I had all of these little sort of these these markers in place as to what I had to do and when.
0: And just before this call, you said a great phrase to me going, Ed, I work better under pressure. Would you say from this part of your experience from a life perspective, it taught you how to look at pressure as well from different components on the track, work-wise, family.
1: Oh my goodness, definitely. So, I remember another training course that I went on was sort of differentiating between stress and pressure. And, you know, it's a real big learning because we're all under stress on a day to day basis. It's, It's identifying when something's stressful and when something is just pressure and what you do. And, you know, it's all about controlling the controllables. And I know it's such a cliche. And I think sometimes people throw those kind of sentences around, but until they become meaningful for you, you can't switch them on. And I think, you know, for me, it was learning how to deal with pressure, identifying between when there's a stress and a pressure and what you can actually do to manage that.
0: Mm -hmm. I want to bring her in with regards to Amy Williams. She actually said that on the podcast, Control the Controllables. But where she taught me and you've got to listen to everybody that it all comes down to your decision making. Like she said, a great example. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, um, Sophia, with regards to when she would go to a coffee shop. She would say, if I have a coffee, would that improve my performance yes it would but if I had that donut would that improve my performance and it isn't so that's how what I learned from her would control the controllables it comes down to our actions in that particular moment relating to our goals which you've mentioned our our performance as well i'd love to hear your thoughts on that little example
1: oh my goodness i mean that's it's very funny actually because i know the entire gb team across the non-disabled and disabled and the winter and the and the the summers we all have the same sports psychologists and funny enough i think if you spoke to any one of us we'd probably all come out with the same types of things but yes what she's just said there is spot on it's just everything everything for me is a flow chart it's like do, which path am I going to take because would I eat a donut absolutely no way well why would I do that well you know what be, that's just a no because it's not going to help me perform so people think those things are difficult decisions but they're only a difficult decision if you aren't going to try and win a medal um or to you know to be the best version of yourself so yeah I I agree with Amy wholeheartedly
0: Awesome. What a cool conversation so far. I want to bring in now 20, 2012, because for me, as I said to you, like when we were exchanging emails, that was the event I took my father actually before his stroke, and we absolutely loved it. And you said you wanted to get 2012 to inspire and make an impact. Like look, looking back from 2012, like how um, inspired are you are that you made it happen for yourself, but how you inspired other Paralympians moving forward from that iconic event in London?
1: Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because I know the whole thing about the Paralympics, I know the strapline was Inspire Generation, but I, I always think, for, and, I, and I don't know whether I'd be the only Paralympian to say this, I don't think I've even discussed it with anyone, but I always, always kind of chuckle to myself about Inspire Generation because that was almost like the, that was the output of the Paralympics for the masses, but that wasn't the output or the input for me. I was never intending to inspire. I I was I was going there to win and so, of course, there's an underlying theme in the UK where uh, uh, disability is really under recognised and really um, and, and pretty much underestimated, too. And so, yes, the output was undoubtedly that it inspired a generation. But for me personally, that was never that was never even in my mindset I, I, I'm I trying to th- find another way to say it. I didn't really care about inspiring other people I wanted to I went there for myself to like any af- athlete I went there to win
0: so when I had Baroness Tony Grey Thompson we talked about winning because you know she's she dominated her sport which I still can't believe how many gold medals she won having role models like Tani was that inspiration for you from a winning standpoint because I think I, I, I'm glad you've mentioned that because it's important from a winning standpoint. Anyway, I'll give you the mic. Love to hear your thoughts.
1: No, no, definitely. I I've never been. I've never. It's that other question when people say, "Who inspires you?" I, can't, I can only ever think of my dad. I don't think I don't. I don't feel like. I don't feel like I've ever looked at another athlete and thought I want to be like them other than maybe if I look and think, oh, they look strong or they're deadlifting really well or I like the way they, they're they running. I like their running style. But I I feel like if you want to go and achieve something which is as um Almost as selfish as being a track athlete, as in you're out there on your own running your race. Sure, you've got a huge team of people behind you and collectively you're achieving that. But it's very, it is a selfish, you're going out there to win. And it, I think it's fantastic that children who with disabilities and parents who have children with disabilities get to see that and see what's possible. But for me, what I moved on to do with the superhero series was far more relatable to, to that than what I did on the track.
0: So on the track then, I'm putting you on the spot now. On the track, you said your goal was to win. Did you have a a target? Like I, I'm gonna assume it was the gold medal, but was that your your goal for 2012?
1: My goal was 17 seconds for the hundred, and, and by the time I retired, I was running 15.99. And then I pretty much ran walked off the track and decided that I'd done enough. But I, by the time I'd seen how much it moved on in 2012, realistically, I knew that I couldn't win. I mean, there, there was no way the the class the classification was so broad and main, rete- remains really broad, and that's not a complaint. It's a fact. It's what it is. And I knew where I sit on that classification. So incidentally, I can be a T34, which is the one down, but I I then have to become a wheelchair user and I can only use one arm. So that's not going to work out very well. I'm going to go around in circles and I've never used a wheelchair. So... um, so my my choices were limited. And so with what I had, my my goal was always deep down to win a medal because I wanted to, but not because I realistically thought I could.
0: Okay, final one. With regards to hitting 15 seconds, how proud were you for achieving that in that sense? Because that's a performance performance goal that you achieved. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. But you know what, just, I think um, the first, the, the f- fastest legal time I had was sixteen one zero, And that for me, sorry, 16.01. And that for me was phenomenal. I mean, and that was at age 39, having started at 17. So what? I i know so i was so tough and but at that point i i was still coming forth and it just felt like every single time i knocked another tiny bit off and the three people i were beaten by were all under 17 and i was just like okay I, there's no way i can keep up with this and and i'd lost my comp- i literally overnight not gave up but just decided i didn't want to do it anymore not in a bad way not in a moody way not in a defeated it was just like that's been brilliant that's enough
0: the reason why i mentioned that and thank you so much for sharing that because i want the listeners to learn that if you are doing the best of your ability even if you're not getting the accolades in this case a medal you're still getting internal wins and and for me it's the same with the podcast for me oh, definitely. and i think i just want to mention that from a learning standpoint with goal setting is it's your own journey and your own path um, i think that's why i mentioned the tannies example because she dominated from a winning standpoint it was about winning then just participating um but I want to now just loop in now just before we talk about um superhero series which I can't wait to discuss in more detail from an athlete standpoint Sophia I have many athletes where I want to just showcase like what's next like you knew when you hit the the 15 second goal like you knew you had enough and I still can't believe you're 39 by the way can you remember like how you process the next step after sport because this is a part in elite sport. I believe there needs to be more education of like helping athlete, athletes transition after their sport. I know you worked in business, but after your athletics career, when did you decide to pivot into your career after sport? If that makes sense, like get back in the working environment.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. I, I was very lucky. Okay. In some weird way, because I was unfunded until 2011 and and I'm really grateful for that because it meant that actually it wasn't an option um, to find myself in the situation that a large number of athletes find themselves in now. So I was blessed at the same time as having that opportunity taken away. So um, I, I went to university, I did very well and I had some time at British Telecom and then later at Nestle. And so I had a life set up before I went onto the elite program, that you know I had a family and that I supported, by the way, as well. So I knew I had to get myself back into that situation. So I got kicked off funding by coming forth at the Paralympics, um, which I knew that's, that those are the rules. That's how it works. I came forth, so I no longer receive funding. Have two children, have to crack on. But I I knew that was gonna be the situation. And so I secured myself a job in the May of 2012 for British athletics. So I was a commercial director there. um, And I I had a pathway out that I'd already secured before I went in. Um, And so so I started doing that and very much decided that my future was going from being in normal marketing into sports marketing very much thinking that's that's it I'm going to transform um, a governing body into being disability led um, and and that's that's where I, st- I stayed for a short time um, before deciding I wanted to go out and do it by myself which is how the superhero series came about
0: yeah we will talk like you're broadcasting as well like when I looked at you did broadcasting as well how did you get into that and What skills have supported you into that role? Because I'm all about showcasing the listeners' transferable skills. And I'm just curious of the marketing background and how you transitioned that into being a broadcaster or a presenter as well.
1: I love sport. Okay, so I'm trying to sort of put it into a different way. So, yes, I I went into and I still do do bits of pieces broadcasting. And I will continue to all the time I'm involved in disability sport. I love it. Um, but I'm definitely a doer and not a. She says on a podcast, chatting everyone's ear off. I'm a doer, not a talker. And so, broadcast for me, I felt like I was sitting there talking about it a lot, but not actually out there doing it. So I did transition over into doing some broadcasting, um, but it's really not for me as a as a as a vocation. It's really. Um, something that I enjoy doing and I will sit and talk about sport all day long like literally you might have to kick me off your podcast Um, so so I was very happy doing that but um, I had very very soon learned that I wanted to be actually working back in what I did before um, before becoming an elite athlete and then carrying on with my running and so I guess that's where, where I where I've ended up um and all skills are transferable you know if, you, if you're persistent you're going to be persistent in everything you do if you're hard working and you've got a good work ethic you're going to be hard working and have a good work ethic if you're driven you're going to be driven so you've just got to find something that you love doing
0: and with regards to love what you're doing sports marketing why is that so interesting to you not just the sport element but the integration of marketing
1: Well, I think it's just really good fun to try and um, get people um, more active. I think, I mean, that's fantastic. But also, I think sports marketing is such a broad term. But, you know, I love the creativity of what I do now. I I love the creativity of the fact that um, disability doesn't have to be ugly or an eyesore. And, you know, and I use lots of cartoon drawings for what I do. But more importantly, I think it's really exciting when you discover a new product into a new marketplace that's never been done before. And, you know, what what marketer wouldn't love to find something that's never been discovered? And so for me, that's that's what this has done. And and I think, like I say, marketing is such a broad, broad um, area, isn't it? And so if, if the thing you love doing is marketing, if the thing you love doing is marketing and the thing you love is sport, then it just you know, I call I call it sport marketing. But it's, it's everything sport.
0: Just final thing, we're going to talk about superheroes series because it does tailor to this. With the marketing aspect, how important is it with regards to storytelling to change the narrative? And please bring in the superhero series, because for me, it's a great case study from a marketing standpoint to change the language, the awareness, which we discussed right at the beginning of the show from a disability sport perspective.
1: It's all about the narrative. It's all about narrative, because even now, when I speak to people about the superhero series, their first reaction is, oh, wow, that's a lovely charity. Like that in itself for me is like, well, no, why do you assume that the Superhero Series is a charity? Because incidentally, we're not. We're a fundraising platform, sure. But, you know, why can't disability sport potentially be lucrative? OK, so it isn't particularly lucrative yet, but why can't it be? If we have 14 million people in the UK who have a disability of one sort or another, and and let's assume 20% of them enjoy doing sport, Why can't it be a marketplace? So I think the narrative around disability is is sympathy, it's patronising, it's kind of pat on the head, whereas the narrative actually, you know, these people are amazing. They can achieve anything they want to, as long as you put the, the opportunity in front of them so that they can actually get out there and do it. So that's what the narrative in the superhero series is all about, is, you know, finding your inner superpower um, finding what it is that you are good at, finding something that you love doing and f- but more importantly, finding a way around it. So if you can't swim, why don't you get a sidekick to swim for you and, and pull you along? So we've got you know a few things. a person with disability is called a superhero and a person who is supporting that person is called a sidekick. and every good superhero needs a sidekick. So but we don't use terms like carer because that straight away puts the person with a disability into a secondary role. And it's those kind of things. People don't know they're doing it. But, you know, even people that I am surrounded by who talk about, you know, people who phone up from charities and say, oh, they'll have their carer with them. And, you know, And those people work in those charities and they still refer to them as a carer. And I think, you know, as a person with a disability myself, I don't have I don't have a carer, but I have lots of psychics around me who might give me a hand doing something. But I don't want them to think they have to look after me because I can look after myself. And I think it's that kind of language in disability is really, really important. And in disability sport, all the time it's deemed as being the secondary cousin or, you know, it's just never gonna work. And also I think the other bit of the, the bit of glue in disability sport is this myth around inclusion because I think sometimes you have to rule out inclusion and go for exclusivity because Someone who has a disability might not want to go to a trampolining class around 100 people who don't have a disability. So why is it OK to make it inclusive? Why don't you run a separate session for a group of people who have different requirements? And I think that's where sport is really failing. And that, na- na- that narrative, I don't like to refer to the superhero series as being an inclusive event. It's exclusively for superheroes to bring their sidekicks along.
0: So on that note, let's talk about today's podcast topic. How can the Super Series increase more sport participation? Because that's, to me, what I love about it. It's, like you said, having it inclu- inclusive, but also accessible. Because it's only this year, through my father, who's been at White Lodge, which we both got in common, that my dad rigged me up for a, a challenge this year to do on Christmas Eve. Yeah. He said, could you do it? Uh, this triathlon on my behalf. You know, And I'm like, I've never heard of this series. So I want to raise awareness for that because... I love the narrative I love the superhero component I know you've got uh, involvement with Marvel and Disney involved so from a supporter standpoint so just from a mass participation like what's the vision behind it from that side of things first the superhero series.
1: Yeah, so the vision behind it is very much about this event is for people who have disabilities. First and foremost, you can't, you can't take this, this event on unless you consider yourself to have a disability or there is somebody in your team who considers themselves to have a disability. So this is led, this is disability led, if you like. Um, And so the idea behind it is that first and foremost, the superhero looks at the event and thinks, OK, how do I get myself around 150 meter swim? A a 3K bike and a 1K push run. How am I going to do that? I don't have to do all three stages, but I have to be self propelled or helped around one of those uh, stages by one of my sidekicks. And that's basically the essence of the event. And so, you know, we have a a large number of people from, you know, bigger charities um, and focus more on injured service people who might come along and do the whole thing themselves. Um and we've actually, by the way, had someone who's taken four hours to complete that themselves, but that's what they wanted to do and you know we have no cutoff times and and we have and that's that's the essence of of getting people along and from my perspective, it all started because I took part in the London Triathlon back in the nineties, and I couldn't get my wetsuit off and I mean it was a really stupid conversation that I had with one of the one of the officials there and they were like, well, no, you can't have someone help you. Those aren't the rules. And I'm just looking at them going, well, do you want me to get on my bike wearing my wetsuit? And then I couldn't get my bike down from the bike rack. And of course I didn't cause a scene because that's really just not the way I am. But I just thought about, actually this could be much more straightforward. And so from there, I just started to build almost, if you were going to build a perfect event where anything's possible, how would you go about that? So that's where sidekicks came in. That's where the equipment came in. That's where all the rule breaking came in, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Well, absolutely. And just to paint the picture, this event you're talking about is actually on the 12th of August, the Superhero try, which I'm involved in. And um, so you, here's a little side story. My father, who we had the stroke, uh, stroke, which was 10 years ago, next him was David. They're both in the same ward. Both of them are going to be on a t- double pedal bike. With regards to the um, cycling aspect, so it'll be a ten-year anniversary for them as well. So, why I shared that is what I love. What you're doing with this event is you're even providing equipment to help my father because he, you know, I know he'll prefer the experience doing it with somebody else. um, If that makes sense. So, just could you just paint the picture of this uh, superhero try with the equipment, just so people for next year know what this event is about, but also that it is like accessible to all. And there's as you said there's no time district um constriction as well. So yeah, I'll give you the mic.
1: Oh my goodness. Yes, it like okay. So let's start with anything's possible. So we have all the equipment there that people need. We have all accessible bikes. Um, so taking the stage the first stage, which is the swim, you can either have a psychic do the swim stage for you, You can borrow a dinghy and go in the dinghy and have a psychic tow you along or you can take on the swim yourself. We only have approximately 50 people in the water at any one time and we have a swim safety person next to anyone who needs somebody. So it's completely easy and we have a ramp so that people can walk in and out. And then for the bike, like you say, we have all the equipment there. People can borrow that to, to go out and um, and obviously that's all available there. You don't have to even get it to the event yourself. Um, and again, you can have someone to do the bike stage for you. And then the, the final 1K is where people, you know, sometimes walk it, some people run it, and um, some people only get halfway and then turn around and come back. Literally our main motto is anything goes. And it's all about getting that medal at the end which incidentally is the same size as a Paralympic medal, which is my final little piece of making money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I made the medals the same as a Paralympic medal just because I didn't get one. Is it?
0: Oh, that's so cool. I love that little touch. Now, just for the listeners listening in, Sophie, could you share the people behind the team who are working with you with this vision? I know um, you're the founder of it, but I, I just want people to... Just really understand that this is a huge team thing behind the scenes. Would you mind just painting the picture from partners involved, um, any, you know, organizations that involved? Because for me, I I love who's behind this. And for me, it shows it's like having businesses involved supporting, you know, events like this as well. That makes sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, first and foremost, there's a team of three people here at the superhero Series. We are tiny. uh, And so we're a huge force. um, um, And people can never quite believe that. So we run the whole, you know, the four events a year. So the two two live events and two at home events. Um, But first and foremost... The whole event is heavily subsidized. Um, so the first thing I did when I when I started this was go out and work out how you run an event. And we don't manage to do that through ticket sales because it costs about 150 pounds to put each person on the course. Uh, so it's subsidized by our amazing commercial partners uh, and we're headline sponsored by Marvel. We also work with Zurich Community Trust. We work with Pfizer. We work with Oracle. We work with DHL, and we have a whole host of amazing brands who who use their DNI strategy um, uh, budget to uh, support us through this. And then on top of that, we have an amazing sixty charity friends, of which White Lodge is one of, um, and they have their subsidised places which they then pass on to fundraisers such as yourself to help help them raise funds. So all in all, it's a model that's never been tested anywhere else before. And we make absolutely hardly any revenue whatsoever on ticket sales. Uh, it's all driven by our partners who support the participants to then go and raise money for charity. It's a very unusual way of working, but it works and it's a lot of hard work, but it's a lot of fun when it all comes together.
0: How you explain that, how fulfilled are you from an impact perspective, completely the opposite of your winning mentality, but reflecting in this one moment, how fulfilled are you from a, I'm going to say it, legacy perspective of positive change?
1: yeah I mean it's, it's amazing I think the big challenge is on the 1st of January you start all over again and you're like oh my goodness I've got, to, I've got to go and do it again so yes when you're standing back and you look at the event you think wow this is this has worked but in the back of your head you're thinking I've got to wake up again tomorrow morning and then do the same thing for the next event so I think sustainability now is the is the big pressure especially with all the other surrounding pressures but yeah I mean super a try you're gonna love it it's your first time along And anyone who hasn't been, they should come along for literally the most joyous day of the year.
0: Absolutely. I've got a very, very personal question, which you don't know about, but I have to mention this. You've got the uh, British Empire Medal, like from 2019. Could you just share your experience when you were told that? And um, I think people need to recognise this if you don't mind sharing
1: oh yeah do you know what I am it's amazing I'm I'm not very I'm not someone who's particularly good at taking uh things like that and I it was an amazing moment for me but it still wasn't quite the same as winning medals at the world championships and stuff but you know it's a real honor to be recognized for the hard work that you do so yeah it, it's it's um uh, it's great it's great it's fantastic
0: so just the listeners listening in so they tell me if I'm right here but it was for your services with With regards to disability sport, but also through this project as well. Is that correct?
1: Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that is that is amazing, you know, to think that you're doing something you love on a day-to-day basis, right? Literally, I think I have the best job in the world, and then somebody recognizes you for doing it. So you think, well, well, how can it be any better?
0: Well, all I'm gonna say is I hope this podcast show amplifies the awesomeness of you, but also the vision moving forward. Because as you probably know. This is almost just the start, in my opinion. Like, I think it can impact more and more people. And and, and I'm certainly going to help you on that from a promotion standpoint moving forward. But just going back to your, like, sort of career journey, looking back right now, what have you enjoyed the most from your sporting career, but where you currently are right now looking back? Oh, I
1: think superhero try is definitely my favourite thing. So, so key moments for me would definitely be World Championships 2011, when I knew that I was going to go to the games. I think, and you know, New Zealand—that um, was really the start of the change. So, silver medal in the 200 meters, um, uh, and then the key points definitely. the I think superhero try when I started to realise it could work. Um, And I know the Superhero Series is the whole is the whole shebang, but Superhero Try, which is the main event, is the moment when you think actually it can be done. Yeah.
0: Could you just explain the difference just from a listener perspective? Superhero Try versus Superhero Series. I know it's interconnected, but because you do other events?
1: Yes. the Superhero Series, we have four events and we have at home superheroes, um, which is our summer event, which lasts for four weeks, which has got one week left. And we've got something like 2,400 people with disabilities doing that at the moment, and they um, and they will be doing the event at home with a medal, teacher, finish line tape, and that's predominantly schools and large groups. And then we have an at-home winter Wills um, uh, which goes on in November for two weeks. And then we have the two live events, Winter Wonder Woman in December and Superhero Try in the summer. And so collectively, we have about 11,000 people a year do our do our, our four events under the Superhero Series umbrella.
0: Wow. What an awesome conversation, by the way. And also just the numbers is just awesome to hear. I don't want to put a target on it, but do, do you actually, from a team perspective, have a goal in how many people want to impact from a participation? Now you've given me those numbers.
1: Well, I think the goal has to, the goal has to be however many people there are who want to take part in sports should have the opportunity. So, so I know that sorry, that's almost like a, a, a not a very. Good answer. If twenty percent of the fourteen point one million people want to be doing doing sport and taking part in mass participation, they currently can't because the events don't enable them to. Then I want the Super Series to be the trigger for that.
0: That's the answer. That's 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 what I want to hear. That's to me. Is all like looking forward and looking in a positive direction for access. I'm all about access, not just from sports careers, but also actually participating in sports. So love that answer. And and um I feel like we're at a great stage of the interview. I'd like to finish with an inspirational one. I know you've been looking forward to this question. What three tips would you give to the listener right now with regards to being the best superhero version of themselves in their day-to-day lives? What would they be? Those three tips.
1: Okay. Well, As with everything, I give things too much thought. And I thought that the problem with this thing is people always say something really stupid like you've got to be happy. But there has to be ways to trigger that. So you have to have actionable action. So I think the first thing is you have to be yourself. So I think you have to not deny who you are. So what I mean by that is if you have a disability, you have to come to terms with the fact that you have disability. So whoever you are, you've just got to be yourself and then um, run your own race. Uh, so that's that's always been what my coach always said but I think in the larger scheme of things it means more doesn't it so that means don't compare yourself to other people it means you you have your goal you keep your eye on that goal and whatever anyone else does you just stick to that goal and then I think the most important thing is find something you enjoy doing because then everything else comes together. So it used to make me laugh when I used to see people down the track who couldn't be both. So, you know, for example, you get set to do uh, a certain amount of uh, planks or dead bugs or something, and you see the person next to you, not do them all. And you think, well, they don't want to be here. So unless you can find something that you love doing, you're never going to achieve.
0: Mm-hmm. So those are going to ask. Tips. I'm going to, I know they're your three tips. But there's one more I want to ask from your definition, like, Because throughout this whole conversation, I'm being a bit cheeky, but this is what I've learned during this conversation. How do you define your definition of resilience? Just never
1: give up. If you believe in something, just go for it. Just keep going for it until you you succeed.
0: Awesome. We're going to finish there because for me, throughout this whole conversation, I've been blown away with your answers and I'm like, how did you keep going? So I'm really grateful that you shared that cheeky fourth one at the end. Sophia, how can people interact with you? on social media but also learn more about the superhero series like where is the best uh url so people can like check it out it will be in my show notes but where where's the best places to go to follow you and learn more about superhero series
1: Head to the website and everything is on there. So um is where the website is, and you will find everything on there, including all of our social media. Uh, please always help us spread the superhero word. So if you've listened to this podcast, please tell everyone about the superhero series, even if you just share our page on your website or, or sorry on your social feed. So and as for me, I'm on I'm on social handles under Sprinting Sophia, which is quite ironic because I don't sprint anywhere anymore. Um, But yeah, certainly, certainly look me up. But first and foremost, just come along to one of our days and come and get involved.
0: That is great. To all the listeners listening in, all those links will be on my website with regards to the show notes as well to really follow Sophia and also the superhero series. Sophia, it's been such a joy chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Wow. This is why I love podcasting so much. I have to be so honest. I was blown away with Sophia's answers with regards to the whole podcast, particularly with regards to her career journey, being an elite athlete, being a 100, 200-meter sprinter, particularly the part just before 1998 where she was just so driven that her love for running made it a reality to be representing Team GB at the 2012 Paralympics. Just to have that belief and then to top it off to be 39 and sprint under that 16 point seconds, it just shows the whole resilience. And honestly, like, backing herself and believing in herself so much. And I think it reminded me during the conversation why self-belief is vital with regards to what we do and what we want to achieve. And then with regards to the superhero series, which... As much as I am involved, I'm very proud to be doing a triathlon very soon to acknowledge my father who had a stroke 10 years ago and he's been part of that event as well, which he's looking forward to. It just shows how legacy can be achieved and that having events like this makes it more accessible. I think that's what I really admire with Sophia with her Vision with superhero series. It's really that there's equal access and having the ability to people to show up, participate, and literally follow their own journey in the activity of that event. And that's really powerful. And to me, this is what the sports industry is about, working in it. It's making sure it is equal access. It's really that simple. So for me, I really admire Sophia's character, her resilience, but from an actual sports industry standpoint, like the conversation we had about marketing and having the right narrative and using the right wording is so important to make people excited in what they want to do and really eradicating the disability from a participation standpoint. It should be accessible and everybody can run their own race. So if you want more information, go to my show notes And there'll be links to the Superhero Series. It'll be awesome to see you there. And if you really have enjoyed this podcast, I'll be super grateful if you can share this. Not for my behalf with the rest of the podcast. I mean to showcase how awesome Sophia is, but also the vision behind Superhero Series. So I'll be super grateful. Just share it. Share your thoughts about the Superhero Series. I would be super, super grateful. But most importantly, as always... I want you to take your biggest learning lesson from Sophia and how you're going to apply that to your personal development with regards to where you want to go and where you want to be with regards to your sports career journey. Put it into action now and make it happen. Now as always...